We're going to look at Isaiah tonight, and um, you've probably seen in some of the announcements, if you pay attention particularly to any of the uh, announcement slides, that I've been wanting to do Isaiah uh, on Sunday nights as well. Uh, I don't want to go through the Gospel of John just straight through 21 chapters without taking some breaks along the way, and Isaiah is going to be the breaks along the way, and we're going to move through Isaiah, and so we're going to mix in John and Isaiah uh, on our Sunday nights when I'm here. On, on Sunday nights and so uh, since today and next week I wanted to do the Gospel of John on Sunday morning that's afforded me the opportunity tonight to kind of initiate to us uh, a little bit about Isaiah and what's told to us there. Uh, Isaiah in verse 1 tells us this great span in which uh, he is prophesying that the kings in which he lists there in that first verse range from 767 uh, BC all the way to 680 86 uh, BC, and most people figure that he began his reign, his reign, his his prophetic uh, ministry in about 740 uh, BC, just to be able to have his age to be appropriate, which would uh, suggest that he's a fairly young man as he begins to prophesy uh, to the nations about things that are going to happen. Uh, it's a fascinating book. It is uh, drives to the heart of of God and His people, and why I felt it would fit very well. Uh, with our Sunday morning lesson that we had today from John 3.16 and looking at the heart of God as he looks at these people and the condition that they're in. And we're going to read this the first eight verses as we begin. And listen to how uh, Isaiah's prophecy begins. And it's always interesting to consider how uh, prophets begin their messages. And Isaiah really pulls no punches and kind of just starts right in with them. So Isaiah 1 verse 1, this is the reading of God's word. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, and the, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. 
Alright, let's spend some time looking at what Isaiah does. Look at what, what Isaiah is speaking concerning the Word of God. And the Lord begins by calling the heavens and the earth as a witness as he presents his charge against his very people. And he tells them, You are not what you are supposed to be. Verse 2 Give ear, O earth, hear, O heavens. The Lord has spoken. Here is the declaration of God. And the declaration is very simple in verse 2. Children I have reared and brought up. I have raised up my people. I have reared my children. But they have rebelled against me. They are not doing what they were supposed to do. They have not been what I have called them to be. And it is the picture of a, a pleading parent. You are my children. And I have invested so much time in you and raised you and reared you, disciplined you and taught you. And yet you're not doing what I trained you to do. You have not been what I have called you to be. In fact, I I like the if you were to render this extremely literally, uh, Alex uh, uh, Motyer renders it like this, where he says, Sons I have nurtured and reared, and they, they have rebelled against me. I think it's a great picture of what God is saying. The audacity of these people. How dare they rebel against me after all that I've done for them. And so it's a calling to the heavens and the earth. Look at what these people have done. Look at the sins that they're committing. What have I done on my part to deserve this because I have reared them. I have taught them. I have disciplined them and raised them. And look at what my people have done. Inexcusable rebellion is simply the answer. And verse 3 brings in quite a bit of humor here. Notice verse 3. The ox knows its owner. And the donkey, its master's crib, here are two renowned stubborn animals. Even these two animals know where their master is and where they are supposed to go for feeding, for provision, for being taken care of. The ox knows its master. The donkey knows where it goes to get fed. What's wrong with you, my people? You are so stubborn and so foolish to not understand that it is God who is giving you everything. That it is God who has taken care of you and provided for you. Even dumb animals know that. And Israel does not understand and does not comprehend. And so what an amazing beginning as Isaiah says, here's God's charge against you. He has raised you and taught you and, and, and done everything that he can for you. And even animals know to turn back to the master and find provision there. But my people, they will not come to me. They will not turn to me. In fact, notice verse 4. Such uh, devastating words to call the people sinful nation there in verse 4. I think there's an intended contrast. Remember, as God called the people out of Egypt, Exodus chapter 19 tells us that He calls them the holy nation. You're supposed to be my holy people, a light to the world, a reflection of the character of God, set apart from the nations, a light to the Gentiles. And rather than being the holy nation, the people of God, God turns them and says, sinful nation. 
You're no better than anybody else. You were supposed to be distinct. You were supposed to be separate. You were supposed to carry out the character of God. And instead, you are just like everybody else. Verse 4, a people weighed down, carrying these sins, loaded down with wickedness. In fact, verse 4, being children of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Everything about you does not reflect God, but reflects sinfulness, reflects wickedness, reflects the world. And so it's a, a, a massive statement that is made by God, and the severity is stated there in the middle of verse 4 notice it they have forsaken the Lord they have despised or spurned the Holy One of Israel they are utterly estranged they're like foreigners they are completely cut off and here Isaiah now presses his finger on why sin is so severe. Here is what has happened. Because of your sins, because you are children of evildoers, you are weighed down by your wickedness. Here's what that means. It is like you have no relationship with God. You are like foreigners to God. You are estranged. It is as if you were like Gentiles. You are so cut off from God. They have forsaken God and despised God. They have turned away from God. And so here is God saying, look at what you've done. Look at what your sins have done. And it's important for us to recognize that Isaiah wants us to see, just as he wanted them to see, that sin is not a small thing. We are certainly find it easy to go, oh, sin, no big deal. Take it for granted, whatever, get forgiven. And we often don't appreciate the gravity of what sin does. And here it is clearly spelled out. You are separated from God. Your sin is a despising of the Holy One of God. And God must treat you as an outsider. You're no longer His people. You can't be counted His children. You're just like the rest of the world. You're like foreigners to him with no relationship and absolutely no access. And the point I want us to consider then is what is the big deal about sin? The answer needs to be everything. Everything is the big deal about sin. It is offending the very character of God. It offends his holiness. And I love how that's the description there. You don't just despise God. Notice you're despising the Holy One. He is holy and right and good and pure. And when our lives are not bound to that very character and understand that that is who he is, then we are despising him and saying, well, that doesn't matter to me. I have no desire for a relationship with him. I'm just going to walk my own way and do my own thing. It is a rejecting and a rebelling against our father. And as we were observing this morning, it is essentially in sin we are declaring that God is insufficient and not useful for our needs. We are not interested in His ways. We are not interested in how He provides for us. And that's the picture here. That's why He uses the donkey and the oxen imagery. Why, Israel, aren't you coming back to the one who made you, created you, provided for you, took care of you? Why are you turning your back against me and instead trying to find it in other means, in other ways? That's the picture that Isaiah is driving at to the people and warning them and saying, look at where you stand before God. You are separated from God. You are in rebellion against Him. And in verse 5, here is the introspection. Notice the, this questioning that God gives in verse 5. Why will you still be struck down? 
Why will you continue to rebel? You are experiencing, Israel, all the consequences of your sins. And we'll explore that in just a minute as to what's going on. We'll see it in verse 9 as to what's exactly the picture. But just consider what here God is saying. You are taking a beating because of your sins. In fact, notice the imagery. The whole head is sick from from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness, bruises, sores, wounds. You're taking a beating because of your sins. And you won't stop. You are dealing with the consequences of sin. And yet you still will not stop. We do things that are in violation of God's law. And then wonder why things don't go very well for us. And here's this is what God is saying. You have rebelled against me. You've transgressed my laws. I've had to cut you off because of your sins. And yet you can't look at yourselves and recognize that the problem is you're out of fellowship with God. Instead, you continue to plow into sinfulness thinking that's going to be the answer. That is the great answer of our world today. You know, if you got a problem, well, we just need to try more. The problem with my life is I just need more money, so I will forsake my family more and work harder so I can have even more money, and that's going to fix it. Then it doesn't. We come up with all kinds of worldly answers to solve our problems, and it never solves the problem. We plunge deeper into the problem. We find ourselves in a bigger mess, and here's God calling out, why don't you listen to what I have to say? That's what makes the book of Proverbs so beautiful. Book of Proverbs saying, let me give you wise counsel. Here's what the good life looks like. Follow my instructions. And that's why I love Ecclesiastes so much as well. Plunge yourself into the ways of the world all you want to. You're not going to find satisfaction there. You're going to continue to find the problems of the world. You need to come to God. I want you to visualize verse 6 because I want you to get a feel of the disgust that God is describing here. Can you imagine if we saw somebody, you know, come into our house or walk through these doors and this is what they look like? Nothing is sound on their body. Not an ounce or an inch of flesh looks good on them. In fact, he says, the all you see are bruises and open sores, festering wounds, and there are no bandages, there's no ointment, no medicine, no antibiotics. They just kind of come stumbling in here, grotesque, all sores and wounds. We'd be like... You need a doctor. (laughs) Okay, can we get you some medical attention quickly? (laughs) This is really gross. And that's what he says, that's what you are, Israel. You are beaten and wounded by sins, and yet you are unbandaged. You haven't had any medicine, no ointment, nothing has been done to you. And he's essentially saying your sins are killing you, and you don't even see it. Your sins are destroying you. You are experiencing judgments. You are experiencing suffering. You are experiencing the consequences of sin. And you don't even see that that's the reason why things are going bad. You can't even see your own spiritual condition. Which, friends, I think that's probably one of the saddest things that we could be in is to not grasp our spiritual condition. To think we're A-OK when in fact we've got sores and wounds and all of these problems and have no idea. Can you imagine if we went to the person and said, you need medical attention? That person said, oh, I'm fine. I don't know what you're talking about. You're like, "Uh, no, you're... 
really messed up, man. The same thing for us. And I think that's sometimes why we don't receive rebuke very well. We don't receive correction very well. We think we're doing fine and someone comes up and says, I've got an open wound that I see there that you need to pay attention to. There is sin that is running amok. There are things that you are doing that are of concern. And when we respond, oh, no, I'm doing fine, you know, warning, listen. Don't assume you're fine when people are trying to help you bring your spiritual condition back to God. And here is God shouting to the people, don't you see your condition? And yet, verse 5, you continue to be struck down, you continue to rebel. And as a reminder to us that our sins have consequences. When we choose to violate God's law, we will pay the price. We will most certainly pay the price in terms of not only ourselves, but it affects our family, it affects our friends, it affects the brethren, it affects everybody. Sin is an amazing event that it just wreaks havoc through people not only of yourself, but through people you know and even people you don't know. The effects and consequences of sin are so far-reaching. And eventually we collapse under the weight of our sin. And that's what God now is describing in verses 7 and 8. The weight of your sin has finally come against you. Verse 7, your country's desolate. Your cities are burned with fire, uh, overthrown by foreigners. Verse 8, is, you're like a little shack in a vineyard. You're like a, a, an abandoned little building out there in the field. You're nothing now because you have turned away from the Holy One of God. And so Isaiah seems to come and just kind of hold the mirror and says, Look, look at what you are. See your wounds. See your sins. Stop rebelling against God. Do you understand the gravity of your sin? Do you see that's why you're being destroyed? Do you see that's why judgment is falling? This time frame likely then, especially if we tie verses 7 and 8 to verse 9, is probably looking at the time then when the northern nation of Israel has been consumed by Assyria. And often we remember those days, remember Assyria comes in and takes the northern nation, we forget that Assyria not only took all of Israel, but it captured all of Judah as well, except for the city of Jerusalem. One little bastion left. The little city of Jerusalem was left there. Assyria had taken it all. And that's what verse 9 then seems to say. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is a nation that is worthy of being consumed of judgment. And the picture is God has now intervened. Here are eight verses saying, you are sick through and through. There's not an inch of soundness to your body. You have been rebellious to God and you continue in your sins. And notice verse 9 is just out of, the, out of nowhere. And if it wasn't for God, you would have been utterly destroyed. And I submit to you, this is probably picturing 2 Kings chapter 19. If you keep your hand here in Isaiah, go over to 2 Kings chapter 19. I want to read just a few verses there with you. And give you what I believe is the historical backdrop to what Isaiah is speaking about. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 32. And listen to what he says there. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. I want you to recognize that would be a very ridiculous prophetic statement. Assyria has conquered everything. <laughs> There's nothing but Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is being given the chance, surrender now. If you just surrender now, you'll be okay because we've captured everything else. And here is the message of God. It's not going to happen. Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Israel. He is not going to come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against him. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. Watch verse 34. For I will defend this city to save it. For my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. I love that line right there. Here's what God says he's going to do. Is he going to do it for the people? No. They deserve judgment. Assyria should just wipe them out and take them with the northern nation and be gone. God says, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. For myself, I'll save you. And because I made a promise to my servant David... I'll preserve you. Next verse, verse 35. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he went, he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, uh, Adamelech, and Azarer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Who drove the enemies back? God did. And I love that's what he says. You know what? I'm going to do it for my sake. His faithfulness to preserve the covenant because God is a faithful God. That he had made a promise concerning these people and he was going to keep that promise. And that is what we see as a beautiful picture to us throughout the scriptures. Why is God acting? Because of his own glory. Because of his own mercy and by his own goodness and grace. In fact, we read it this morning in Ephesians chapter 2 as we were looking at the Apostle Paul and talking about the great love with which he loved us. Why did he do it? It says, by his great mercy, because of his own character, not because of us, not because we are special, but because God will keep his word and God has said he would have a people and these were going to be his people and so he says I'm going to come and spare you and that's why I love verse 9 of Isaiah 1 if it hadn't been for the Lord of hosts if the Lord of armies had not arrived guess what we would have been like Sodom over and destroyed it would have been become like Gomorrah it would have been the end of us but we serve a gracious and great God who is able to deal with us even when we are as sick with sin as described in Isaiah 1 even in reading how awful the people are and they continue to rebel and stubbornly turn away from God God says I love these people and I will act on my own behalf and I will then say them. 
And so I just want to leave you then with a couple thoughts from Isaiah for tonight and for this week. And the question is simply this. Looking at what Isaiah is presenting to the people, the question I think is implicit, which master will you serve? Will we recognize that our Lord is our master? That He has provided every good gift that we have. He is our caregiver. That He loves us and cares about us. And because of that love, then we will zealously serve Him and seek Him and obey Him. Or to put it as bluntly as Isaiah, we can be stubborn, foolish donkeys who don't understand that everything has come from God. And we go our own way, resisting everything that God has accomplished as God calls us to Him and pleads with us to obey Him, calls us to draw near to Him and to turn away from our sins. And we stubbornly refuse to see that He is the giver of great love and mercy, that He is the one who has provided for us, has created us and made us. And it is our obligation to turn to Him and serve Him. We need to appreciate the God of grace that we serve. And understanding that goodness and that mercy and that grace should drive us not to be stubbornly resisting our Lord, but zealously, passionately, lovingly seeking God with every ounce of our being. Isaiah begins his message like that and says, Come to the Lord who is sparing you of the wrath and the weight of sin. And we bring it forward to the New Testament. That's why he sends his son. One of the fun things we're going to get to see as we go through Isaiah is Isaiah is going to continually point in the midst of all their sins that there was going to be a great redeemer, a great servant who would arise and deal with the sins of the people and suffer for the people so that they could have their sins taken away and they could return to fellowship with God. We separated ourselves, but through the loving kindness and graciousness of God, He has reconciled that relationship through the blood of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. We call you tonight to make a decision, which master will you serve? Will you serve the true and living God, forsake the things of the world, no longer stubbornly resist Him, but allow the goodness and graciousness of God to fill your heart so that you will follow Him? Or will you continue down your own road? Will you continue to reject the God of mercy, the God of grace? Will you continue to do and live how you want to live? We're begging you through the mouthpiece of Isaiah, turn away from your sins. No longer serve self, no longer resist the Lord your God, but obey and serve and love the Lord with all of your heart. Turn away from your sins and be immersed in water and have your sins washed away. We're singing this invitation song. We want you to do that. The water's ready. Won't you come while we stand and sing this song?